Good evening. Open up to Matthew 26. So many times in our lives, we are confronted with our weaknesses, with circumstances that seem greater than our ability to endure, handle. And what I love about the scriptures is we see the truth of our humanity lived out throughout the people that are recorded in Scripture, and very much so in chapter 26. We're going to be starting at verse 17, I believe, is where we left off last time. Yeah, we're going to actually go into the Last Supper. And as we try and conclude this chapter, what we're going to be focusing on throughout it is a lot of the areas where we see the humanity and the frailty of the people, whether it's Judas, whether it's Peter, whether it's all the disciples, even the wickedness of religious leaders, all these things come out in this chapter. And so let's pray once again as we get started. Father, as we read about these individuals and these circumstances, Lord, there are so many times where our names can be put in in place. Father, there are so many circumstances that we encounter and face where we find ourselves in very similar situations. And, and we find our strength gone, and we find our faith waning, and we find ourselves doubting and struggling afraid and maybe even running away. But you remain firm, a foundation, a rock beneath our feet. And it is so comforting to see who you are in the midst of our weaknesses. Lord, may this time be rich, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I've got to tell you guys, I've really been enjoying... Thursday nights and just the interaction that takes place with us. And I hope you guys are reading ahead so that you can join in in these things. If not, if something prompts your mind as we go through this and stands out to you, please don't hesitate to share with us as we go through these things. I'm going to try and get through the entire chapter. Let's read uh, about the Last Supper, starting at verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were all very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood. Of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. A very familiar passage, and as we are once again here looking at Jesus' time with his disciples, there's 
something that's taking place. Jesus is saying, again, this is the last time I'm going to eat with you of this, but he's eating with them. He will eat again before the resurrection, but not the Passover. And there's this kind of hidden or, or subtle dynamic that's taking place in this Passover encounter where Jesus and Judas seem to be the two focal points. And I was captured by Jesus's dealing with Judas and how he knew it was him who would betray him, but he didn't make a spectacle of him. He didn't berate him. He actually went on and ate with him, even though he knew he was going to betray him. And it's going to be interesting as this unfolds with Judas, as we see later on in this chapter, there's just so many interesting things that are taking place between Jesus and Judas. And that interaction, again, is amazing. What amazed me or made me think was how many times in Scripture God has this conversation, an interaction that takes place with him and those who are about to do evil, like Judas or like Cain in the garden. Before Cain killed his brother, we never hear of God talking to Abel, but we hear of God talking to Cain and saying, Cain, you need to be careful. If you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But sin is waiting, crouching at the door, ready to devour you. You must not let it master you, but you must master it. Why is God having that dialogue with Cain? Why is Jesus having this dialogue and interaction with Judas? It seems that God is always extending opportunity for repentance and for restoration. Even from those who are about to do some wicked things. You see, God isn't distant. He's engaged. Even with those who have animosity or envy or whatever is going on in Judas's heart or in Cain's heart or maybe in our hearts at time, God is engaged. He's not distant. You know, when Corrine and I get in an argument, when there's tension, which never happens, but if it did... When those things would happen, what happens usually is we get distant. The conversation stops because I'm angry. And I want you to know I'm angry, so I'm not going to talk to you. Yeah, that sounds like something I did in third grade, right? It just continues. And so there's this distance. I I don't want to engage you because I'm upset with you, but God doesn't do that. He engages and he, he pushes close to those who are actually thinking themselves distant. And Judas, it appears, had kept this secret from the other disciples. They didn't know. They're all asking, is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? And when Jesus even told Judas at some point, it sounds like Judas came up separately and said, surely you're not talking about me. And when Jesus said, you've said so, the others didn't key in on that or they probably would have beat him up. They didn't hear that and so they stayed distant. He, he kept it quiet. And so we see that Judas is leading this double life, this secret life. And a secret life is never good. If you're leading a double life, it's never going to lead to something good. It never ends well. And we see that case with Judas. Something has distanced him from what was taking place with the other disciples. And I wonder sometimes if we get to a place where no one understands me. No one gets the things I'm going through. They wouldn't understand how I feel or why I need to be involved with this. 
you know, maybe it's a situation you have a struggle with, a sin even that's there, uh, some addiction, you know, maybe it's alcohol or whatever. No one, no one knows what I'm going through. And so what you do is you just pull away and distance yourself and you have your little secret life. And then you have your, you know, Christian life over here. And pretty soon that starts to create a divide. And, and I can't relate to these people anymore. And we come, become more and more distant. A double life isn't a good life. It never leads to good things. It leads to more distance, more separation, even as we see here with Jesus. And as Jesus goes through these famous words, giving the bread and the cup, and he says, you know, in verse 26, he says, take, eat, this is my body. Uh, we know that he's saying this represents my body. It's not actually his body. And we know that because his body is there telling him, take, eat, this is my body. Okay, so it's kind of like he, he's telling them at this time, this is my body, while his body is there, and so we know it's a representation. We don't have to speculate, well, why did he say this is my, he's saying that to them, saying what you're eating now it represents what you see here before you. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're not eating the Lord's body again. And I don't think it was an issue for them, but in history, it has been an issue. People have given their lives over this very thing, saying, no, Jesus died once for all. We don't kill him over and over again. And so as this takes place, it's again, very somber mood. Jesus has just disclosed that someone's going to betray him. Their minds are reeling. They're all saying, no, it's not me. It's not me. It's not me. They all kind of join in with this. And then the trippiest verse, or not really, but trippy anyway, is verse 39. They had sung a hymn, and they went to the Mount of Olives. After all this, they sang. And they probably sang one of the songs of Hallel, the praise songs, which are like Psalm 115 to 118. They were common songs singing as you would go into this festival, this week of feasts. It was songs that were kind of specified for those things. And I think it's just cool that Jesus was singing. I just think it's such a neat thing that I would love to have been on the outside of that room and just heard them singing. And here's Jesus' voice singing these psalms that were part of the scripture. As we read these passages, are there any questions you guys have about these passages or any things that stand out to you? Okay, don't go quiet on me. You guys have been so inputting last few weeks, so keep it up. Well, again, we see now, again, a, a shift change, very somber mood. They go to the Mount of Olives, and verse 31 will continue. It says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, of, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. The famous denial of Peter. A number of things are happening here. First, there's the statement Jesus makes. The, the mood's already somber. It just gets worse. I'm going to be betrayed, and you're all going to disown me. It's like, oh, you're all going to fall away on account of me. And they recognize this. It's a bad thing. And this was known because it was written. Jesus said, this is what's going to happen because the scriptures have prophesied about this. I just want you guys to know about it. But then he goes on and he says, there is this hope. After I have risen, I will go ahead of you. And so he doesn't leave them in this place of despair. He tells them, you guys are all going to scatter. You're going to just take off. It was written, but when I'm risen... I'll go before you and ahead of you to Galilee. Then there is this denial by Peter, the famous, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. 
And then once again, there is specifics and clarity. Jesus says, no, this is exactly what you're going to do. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then they all continue, no, no, I'm not going to do it. And they all chime in. They have this discourse. Now, a couple of things stand out to me. First of all, why do you think Jesus is telling them that they're going to all fall away? Prophecy? What other reasons? Why would he tell them this? Telling them because it's prophesied. He definitely quotes the scripture here in Zechariah 13. Why else would he tell them? Maybe to kind of give them something to hold on to. I told you this was going to happen. To remind them later. You know, kind of, if you know about something, kind of eases the blow a little bit. It does ease the blow. It kind of, oh, that's right. I remember when I started doing dog training, one of the trainers said, you're going to get bitten. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Just so you know it's coming. And, uh, you know, I don't know if that comforted me or not, but when it happened, I remembered her words. She was right. I got bitten, and it does happen. And so it's like, okay, I didn't do something wrong. It's just part of this event that's going to happen. And Jesus is saying, this is going to happen. It's kind of letting them know. And so after it happens, they're a little bit, you know, cushioned the blow of what just took place there. Now, especially with Peter. I mean, Peter is great because I can so identify with Peter's, not me. Can anyone else? Like, I'll never do that. No way, Lord. And then it happens, and you're like, Ugh. and Jesus just makes it so clear, Peter, this is how it's going to happen. I want you to have this understanding. Now, again, when he tells them, no, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, we know what's going to happen. And later on in the chapter, when it does happen, there is this, remembering that takes place. And again, I think Jesus is telling Peter this for Peter's sake. He's not telling it, I know you're going to do this. I'm going to prove to you because this is going to happen. Even like you said, he's not just saying, you guys, you're so bad, this, you're going to do this. I feel like he's telling Peter this so that when it does happen, Peter knows Jesus wasn't surprised by your failure. Maybe you were, but he wasn't. And I wonder if sometimes we need to hear that, that God isn't surprised or shocked by our failure, no matter how much we are. And so when we give in to that temptation, when we are overwhelmed and our, our faith wanes and we respond in a way that we didn't think we would, God's not like, oh my gosh. God's, he could have said, yeah, before the microwave goes off, you will throw the glass across the room. I don't know, whatever, you know, whatever the situation, you will lose your temper. But before those things happen, God said, no, I knew this was going to happen. He's not surprised, uh, which is comforting. I think it's comforting to find those things. And so they all deny it, though. They continue on with their denial. We're not going to do this. We'll never do this, Jesus. And they're convinced. I don't think any of them are saying, you know, I mean, he might be right. I feel a little bit like I might deny him. I, I don't think they're thinking that. I think they're all just like, isn't going to happen. Not going to happen. So verse 36, now he moves into the garden. I'm going to try and push through this chapter because there's so many cool things that happen and there's a lot here. Then Jesus went with the disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, 
My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here come my betrayer. Here comes my betrayer. A few things stand out to me in this passage. One is that even as this time of sorrow was coming upon Jesus, he wanted someone to be with him. He didn't want to be alone. And as he told them, let's go, and they moved towards Gethsemane, he called them three, Peter, James, and John, and had them even closer because these were people he most likely was much closer to. And I think it's telling that Jesus wanted this. And, and I think it's something that we find ourselves, we, we do better and find comfort when there's others with us. We, we're not meant to be alone. God said that to Adam after he created everything, and it was not good that he was still alone. So even though Adam had this great fellowship with God before sin entered in, it wasn't good that he was alone. And here we see that Jesus, in this situation, wants people to be with him. He doesn't want to be alone in this time of trouble, and we all do. And then we see that Jesus goes and he prays. Why does Jesus need to pray? What do you guys think? Why does he have to pray? He knows what's going to happen, right? Why do you think he's praying? Prays for strength. <laughs> the reality of the situation, the fear of the situation, wanting certainty. Is this it? Is this really what you want? Why do we pray? If we're in a circumstance, and I know you guys have been in circumstances that are difficult. You know, maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's for your children. Maybe it's for, you know, uh, some kind of tragedy that's befallen or in front of you. Why do you pray? What do you usually pray? For help? It's okay. Kind of connecting to God for help, for help from God. Draw close to God. You guys are all spiritual. I pray for things to change. <laughs> I do. It's like, God, help, you know, change this, heal this, drop money from the sky. I mean, whatever the thing is, I, you know, I, I oftentimes find myself praying that the circumstance will change. And we don't really see Jesus doing that. Jesus isn't praying so much that the circumstance will change, but we see him praying for divine help, not only for possible deliverance, but direction and, and courage, which is, again, our example. All these things that Jesus went through, we are to learn and to live like this. And so when Jesus is finding himself in the circumstance, he says, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass. I don't want follow through with this if there is another way. And he goes back and there's his disciples sleeping. You know what I wonder too is how did Matthew know to write these things? I wonder how long Jesus prayed and I wonder if what is written is only what the disciples were awake to hear. 
I wonder if there was a lot more that didn't get written because they fell asleep after the first minute. And so what they heard were just those first things. And I wonder what else he might have said. But what we have here is for us to know. And so he said, if there's any other way, he came, they were sleeping. And he goes, okay, if there's no other way, I want your will to be done. And then the last time he prayed that again. And so we see Jesus basically confronting the situation. And what he's doing is he's wanting divine perspective that would envelop his own perspective. And what a a great idea for prayer. Prayer isn't about, God, I want you to change this. I want you to do this. It's, I want your perspective to overwhelm mine so that your will and my will are working together so that I can see things as you see things. And if they're difficult, Lord, let your will be done. Don't let me cave to the pressure. I want to see this through because your will is more important. What a great mindset to have. What a great perspective to have. And I love the fact, I shouldn't say it this way, but I'm so thankful that it's recorded that they fell asleep. I'm so thankful that we see their humanity. And what's tragic is it was at the time when Jesus needed someone, needed them the most. They weren't there for him. Has that ever happened to you? When you needed someone and they weren't there for you? Has it happened where someone needed you and you weren't there for them? I remember when I was in high school. I think I was in high school. might have just graduated. And I had a bad day. I don't remember why it was a bad day. But I was having a little pity party for myself. And I was inviting everyone, but no one was coming. And I was having this party, and my friends and I got into my car, and we were going to some concert. You know, it was this band playing at a church and everyone was excited because it was a big name band and so we were driving there and it was hard to find parking and so I had had a rough day and no one asked how my day was but it was a bad day and I was driving everyone I had to do a lot to get everyone pick them up and then I'm driving them there and as we get there and there's no parking they all say well just pull over here they I pull over and they all jump out and they run out to go get in line and I'm left there in the car and I got to go park somewhere else out in the boondocks And so I'm driving there and I'm just, I'm fried because these are my close friends and they just bailed on me for some band. And I wanted to see the band too and I couldn't bail so I had to stay in the car and I drive over there and I just remember being really frustrated and just kind of angry. And I remember very vividly when I finally pulled over and I was just frustrated and I just like, I don't even want to be here. And I can remember God saying, Sam, I didn't leave. I'm still here. And it overwhelmed me. I just started breaking down. I just started weeping there because it's what I needed to know at that time that God was near. And even though I felt alone, I wasn't. And even though my friends bailed on me, God didn't. And it's that undergirding those arms, the everlasting arms that don't drop us, that are a comfort. Because people will fail. I have failed people. I have failed my children. I have failed my wife. I have failed my friends. I've had friends fail me. I've had my family let me down. It's how we are but God is always there. Anything stand out to you guys in this passage of just Gethsemane, which means oil press, kind of an interesting term, oil is being pressed, and that's how they get the olive oil. And that, those words you mentioned, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation, that's a key there. If we're in an area of temptation, we should watch and pray. So that we don't, you know, sometimes we think, well, no, I don't, I just need to, I don't know what we think, but here's what we should do. If there's an area of temptation, you should watch and pray. 
You, know, you should be on guard, pay attention, and be in dialogue with God. That's going to be your strength. Very cool. Anything else stand out to you guys? Yeah, you got it. That's part of watching. No, that's true. I mean, you're, that's part of the watching. That's part of being aware and the praying. Any other things stand out to you guys in this passage? You guys identify with these disciples? Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Anyone relate to that more than once in their life? It's a difficult time. And now, I mean, can't you understand what Jesus is going through right here at the time he needed it most and they're asleep? And now it's, it's done. The, you can't go back and get back this time. It's over. And so verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, arrived with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come at, out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writing of the prophets might be fulfilled then all the disciples deserted him and fled. One of the twelve, it starts off. What a sad statement. One of his inner group arrived with this crowd, armed with swords and clubs. And there's a few things that are interesting here. This idea of kissing was a symbol of friendship. It was a, a symbol of honor. But there's two words that are used. In verse 48, when it says, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him, it's an affectionate term. It's a, that of friendship. The one who I show this friendship, this kiss that's a friendship, is the one. But when it actually says that he kissed Jesus, it's actually more endearing. It's actually, he, he kissed him repeatedly on the cheek. It was like something, he's like a real endearing term. So he's saying, the one I show this friendship to, that's him. But when he comes to Jesus, it seems even more so. Barclay in his commentary presents this thought that I, I found intriguing. Even as last week we talked about Judas wanting something that Jesus wasn't giving. Jesus wa Judas wanted another Jesus. He wanted a Jesus that was going to do things the way he thought things needed to be done. And we talked about that issue that happens many times in our lives, how we want a Jesus who will do things the way we want to, and Jesus is going to do what the will of God is. He was, Barclay's presentation was, was Judas trying to, push Jesus into the role that he wanted him to be in. In other words, okay, Jude, Jesus, here are these people, do something. Now, and this kissing him was a very enduring, endearing term. And he's like, rabbi, and he's kissing him, expecting Jesus, okay, here they're coming after me. I got to stand up. I've got to stop this. Did 
Judas believed that Jesus could stop them? He, he's seen him do miraculous things. He's seen him raise people from the dead. He's seen him feed 5,000. He saw him heal those who were blind, those who were lame, those who were lepers. He's been with Jesus and seen him do miraculous things, pass through crowds without being harmed at all, walking on the water. He knows that there is this power. They were marveling at Jesus when he calmed the storm. Who is this man that even the winds obey him? Was he pushing Jesus? Okay, Jesus, stand up now and do something. Was he trying to push Jesus into a role that Jesus wasn't going to take? And when Jesus didn't fall into that role, we see there is that remorse that we talked about last week where Judas said, oh my gosh, what have I done? Just interesting thought. But as this happens, we see, we know it's Peter who draws his sword because John tells us to, and he's trying to probably cut off the servant's head, but he just wasn't real good, so he just got the ear. We know in the other gospel that Jesus actually heals the man's ear, which is, again, showing Jesus' attitude and concern for others to the very end. Uh, but interesting, these things that take place, and Jesus, you know, there is a time to kill, there's a time to heal, and this is not the time to draw your sword. This isn't the time for you to try and make a statement. This was supposed to happen. I've been telling you this is going to happen, and now it's here. And finally, when it's here, the disciples deserted him and fled. Now, it's interesting because Peter said, Lord, I'll, I'll never leave you. I'll die before I take off. We know he's the one who pulls out his sword, tries to start something, but Jesus doesn't back him. And you see, it's a different thing when Jesus isn't backing you. It's a whole different scenario when you're facing a bunch of swords and your leader doesn't want to fight and you're there by yourself. Come on, let's get him, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, we're not doing this. He's like, oh my gosh. And now he sees himself with a sword and this large group with their swords. And he's like, okay, this ain't going to work. And so all those words, I'll die for you, they're gone. And they all flee, just like Jesus said would happen. And here we see them desert. They flee. Each one takes off for their life because they're afraid. They're afraid. We know in the other gospels that Jesus says, hey, you came for me. Here I am. Leave them alone. Jesus actually helped them to get away. Anything stand out to you guys in this passage of his arrest? Tony, the fact that he carries a sword? You know, I mean, a lot of times a sword was something that was used for, again, self-defense. It could be used for other things, but um, protection from animals, a uh, lot of reasons. So no reason they wouldn't carry a sword. I don't know if this is, you know, a scripture you could use for the NRA and the right to carry bury arms, uh, but it didn't seem to be a big deal at that time. Well, remember, too, that we read that when they were wanting to arrest Jesus, they were frightened because of the crowds. And now here it is, the Passover. Here's going to be seven, eight days where there's a million plus people in Jerusalem coming in and out. And so this was an opportunity to go at night. They didn't want to do it when there was a lot of people because they were worried about what would happen. And so they're doing this on, at night on purpose. Judas gave them the means. He would lead them to where he was at night so that they could do this for just this time. And so the scenario is playing out. Of course, we know it's playing out this way at this time because Jesus was the Passover lamb that they were going to celebrate, that they did celebrate with the Last Supper. And so here they are, this meeting. Now they have left and Jesus is arrested. Verse 57, it says, Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. 
though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Things start to get dark here. And in this arrest and in this time, as he's before the Sanhedrin, there are three things that took place. Jesus was taken at night. And what's probably happening here is this is kind of the Supreme Court of the Jews at this point. And it it was composed of the scribes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. Twenty-three were required to be together for a criminal trial. And it was supposed to be done in the day. The fact that it's being done at night was illegal by their law. But there was going to be a time in the morning where, again, there was a trial that takes place. And we know this through all the Gospels. And then there's also going to be a time where uh, Jesus goes before Pilate. And so this is happening in the evening. And what's happening here is they're actually trying to formulate charges against him. What can we do to bring charges against him? Tomorrow morning, we're going to have to set him down before court. What do we have against him? Well, let's get a couple of witnesses. They're trying to get people together, but they're not agreeing. And finally, there's this moment of truth where the high priest comes to Jesus. And in verse 63, he says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the son of God. He pushes this so that Jesus is forced to make a decision. You see, Jesus could have said no and gotten out of all of this. If he would have said, no, I'm not, everything would have went down. His power and all the things that he had been promoting himself to be would have been taken away and he would have been able to leave. But Jesus couldn't say no because he was. And so finally he says, you said so. And then he goes on and he quotes Daniel chapter 7 and he says, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He's giving them a picture of his power, his authority, and they just can't take it. They flip out. They tear their clothes. They say, this guy's worthy of death. The fact that he said he's the Messiah, now they have charges against him. Now they can go before Rome and say, this guy says he is a king. And he is usurping authority. They have now the means, the loophole, to have him put to death. And so they've been pushing for this. It's now happened. They're getting what they want. And so now they start in their frenzy, spitting him on him, hitting him, abusing him, mocking him. And he's taking it. Anything stand out to you guys in this whole chapter or this whole passage where he's taken secretly and this kind of kangaroo court thing that takes place here. Well, they don't want it to be any more powerful. They don't want to lose their power. Definitely. Yeah, the irony that his innocence is what covered our guilt. Yeah. I mean, and it is. It's a heartbreaking situation because... Here's someone who not only is innocent, this is God. And here is God coming to be with us. And here is what man is doing. And of course, it's fitting into what needs to be done, even as you said. But it's just heartbreaking. You know, the whole passion is heartbreaking. 
this is the love of God. You know, it's interesting just that they call this the Passion Week. And the idea of passion was the love of God that moved him to this place. That this was God's passion, was love for us that would put him through this for our sake. Let's finish the chapter here. We're just about done. We can kind of go over it. Starting at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he came out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to him, said to the people there, This fellow's with Jesus the Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I didn't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. There is so much, again, in this whole chapter, and maybe nothing more so than these final verses of Peter's denial that just bring out our frailty, our humanity. Peter, who not long ago was willing to die for Jesus, is now denying that he knows him. He's cursing and he's doing everything he can to to protect himself. And when the rooster crows, he remembers what Jesus said and he weeps bitterly. There are so many things about this passage that I hate, but the reason I hate them is because I can identify with them. Where my life is denied Jesus by the things that I've done, by how I've conducted myself. Once again, the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak, and here we see Peter giving in, falling to the flesh, and it hurts. But what's amazing is that Jesus knew it before it happened. And he told Peter this would happen, and even like we said, He cushioned the blow. I wonder what would have happened to Peter had Jesus not told him this is going to happen. Would he have just kept on denying? Was this the wake-up call that said, oh my gosh, he was right, and it snapped him out of that continual denial? But this passage, even though it's haunting, it's also comforting. Because we know the story doesn't end here with Peter, it goes on. And he ends up being used powerfully by God through the book of Acts. Ends up being martyred and does end up dying for Jesus. And what's what a great picture that we should not put a, a period where God is only putting a comma in our life. That we shouldn't think, okay, it's over, I did this. And God says, no, there's more to be told. There's more to be lived. It doesn't end here. And so if you find yourself in a place where you just feel like, ah, it's not good. This isn't good. I've blown it. Don't put a period there in your life and say, this is the end. God wasn't surprised. There's still more of life to be lived. You know, all our lives are testimonies still being written. And Peter's life isn't identified by this one failure. This one failure is just proof of the power of God to later transform this man's life. Same thing with Saul, who became Paul. He was persecuting the church, putting to death those who were following Christ was converted, and that was just a testimony of what God can do in that life. Let our failures be a testimony of what God can do, the powerful God that we serve that can change who we are 
and take us from being broken and fragmented and weak and useless into people that are actually useful for his purposes, that actually can be of value that once we saw as being useless. Any thoughts on these final verses in this chapter? Well, I mean, things, remember that Peter needed to be restored later on. I mean, so it was to a point where it was kind of convalescent to him. I mean, this was just like he, he, he was broken. He had to be restored to a place, and that's where, you know, Jesus comes to him and asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? And imagine after you've denied the Lord three times and three times he asks you, do you love me? You know, and he pushes it. Do you care about me? You know, with this deep love. And he says, Lord, I, I, I'm so fond of you. And he goes, Lord, you know, Peter, do you care for me with this deep, deep agape love? And Peter goes, Lord, you know, I'm fond of you. And then Jesus says, Peter, are you fond of me? And he just weeps because he's asked him the third time. And he goes, Lord, you know all things. You know, he, he's confronted with his weakness and he's broken. And there's this moment of, Lord, I don't know how much I love you because I've already failed you. And, and what's amazing is, again, just like we said, is what God does is take someone who is faulty and uses him for his purposes, which is hopeful to all of us. He takes the weakness and it becomes a strength. And that's what Paul said, in my weakness, he is made strong. In fact, when I am weak, that's when the strength of God rests on me. So Peter too could say, you know what? I can only love you this much because I know how weak I am. And Jesus says, well, I'm gonna entrust you to feed my sheep and care for them. Because I will take the brokenness that you have and I will prove my strength in it. And that's kind of the bottom line of what Jesus is doing, is right here at this point, he is taking the brokenness of humanity and he's gonna buy it back for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, there is so much in this chapter, again, that strikes at the core of our humanity, of our weakness, that challenges us in our faith and trust in you, that helps us to recognize, God, that you know our frame. You know that we are but dust, as the psalmist says. And yet, Father, it is in these earthen vessels that you will put your treasure this light. And God, we are so thankful that in spite of our weaknesses, you are strong. Lord, that we do not trust in our abilities, but we trust in your capable hands to change who we are, to reform us, to make us new. You don't just make us better. You make us new. You change the essence of who we are. And we are so grateful for that, that you put within our hearts a desire to continue to follow after you in spite of the weakness in our frailty. Lord, may these words bring comfort to us, Lord. May they bring hope. May you continue to draw us closer to yourself. May we see, Lord, in this chapter, your love for us being displayed in spite of our weakness, in spite of our failures, Lord, you remain the same. We do thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.